Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And as you'll know, each week, twice a week, I bring you brand new cutting-edge military histories as I interview experts, veterans, and policymakers about the history of warfare. But once a week, as a bonus episode, I delve deep into the Dan Snow's History Hit archive to pull out an episode that I think deserves a little more attention. And I'm incredibly biased this week, because I've pulled out an episode that I did with Dan a few years ago on the history of drones, based on my own research in the US archives. Now, the reason why I bring this back is because this week we continue to see the fallout from the US lethal drone strikes in Afghanistan during that hectic withdrawal last month. An investigation has shown that it killed 10 Afghan civilians. And so I thought I'd bring this episode back because it puts drones and drone warfare into its appropriate historical context. We go all the way back to the First World War, to the first uncrewed aerial systems, the aerial torpedoes that were invented to reduce the cost to American life in war, to do warfare at arm's length and, you could say, by remote control. And we trace that technology and the ambitions behind it all the way through to the present day. So, here's me and Dan Snow on the history of drones. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You, you cannot hear about warfare now without hearing about drones. Yeah, they're pretty kind of dominant. Are they dominant because they are incredibly effective tools in the battlefield? Are they dominant because politicians love them because they don't involve their lads getting killed? A bit of both. I mean, I think they're really popular with the public as well because they stop both men and women on the battlefield from being killed. But for politicians, they're kind of a panacea weapon. You know, after the cost-heavy wars, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Remember, the support was there early on, post 9-11. We wanted to go to war in these countries. The public support was there. But as the body bags came home, the support kind of invariably faded. And as a result, politicians were left with a real problem. How do we continue fighting this global war on terror, but without putting our best and our brightest at risk? And it was Obama who was elected off the back of kind of getting America out of these wars, getting people off the ground, 
and it was him who really took hold of the drone and shoved it into the battle. Oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll talk about all the aspects of that. It's fascinating stuff. Let's go, well, let's go through the history, though, of course. Let's start at the beginning. Um, first use of unmanned aerial vehicles, how, how should, drones, when, when was it? Well, I suppose one of the first things that was kind of called a drone, but really called an aerial torpedo, was a thing called the Kettering Bug in 1917. And it was created by uh, a General H.H. H. Arnold, who would go on to lead the US Air Force during the Second World War to victory. And one of his friends, actually, an engineer slash designer who, as Arnold said, did all sorts of impossible things called Charles Kettering. And they came together along with um, people like Douglas, a pioneer of aviation, and they created this uncrewed aerial vehicle about the size of a normal biplane. It was set onto rails. Um, It had a rotor blade that you could preset to a certain amount of revolutions. And it would take off by itself, it would go through the air, the revolutions would turn a certain amount, so it could get this torpedo to its its destination. And then it would stop. And then the wings would drop off, and it would swoop down, as they said, like a falcon onto its prey. And Arnold would say that you could achieve precision of 40 metres after a 100-mile run. Now, you go through the... Hold on a minute. (laughs) I've been in a biplane in a nasty crosswind. Yeah, you can go through kind of the archives and have a look at actually the tests, and um, it doesn't achieve anywhere near as this. Um, and actually, it spirals out of control all the times, but they persevere and they push forward with it. Um, the trouble is, is that they can just never get it to work right. But for me, what's fascinating is that the ambition is there. This ambition to have these uncrewed aerial vehicles that mitigate the need to put human life at risk, well, at least American human life. Is it no coincidence that that was an American uh, development? Because this could be this could be my prejudice, but as one of the early large democratic states, the value of human life was perhaps they were voters, they were members of the public, they weren't they weren't just subjects of the Kaiser to be sent into the front line. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, America was always set out to be different, right? Since the first steps onto Plymouth Rock. It's going to be the new world and not that of the brutal old world. And Americans try very hard, Americans politicians try very hard to keep the United States out of the European wars. You've got the 1823 Monroe Doctrine and the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary that really seek to keep the US out of these brutal European theatres. Instead, the American experience of war prior to the First World War is very much kind of small policing interventions. Uh, bandit wars, as they called them. So we're talking about Nicaragua, we're talking about Haiti and Cuba. But this all changes when the United States is drawn into the First World War. This brutal war of attrition, entrenched warfare on the ground, and 200,000 American casualties, something which we often overlook, fighting in the trenches in Europe. And the call goes out from the American people who are shocked and knocked back by this idea of warfare, by this generation of young people coming home, um, that they never want to be involved in these kind of wars ever again. So the search goes out. How do you avoid this kind of warfare? And a small group of a fledgling wing of the American military, which is, you know, the American Army Air Service, as it starts to rise up, say, actually, we can fulfill this, this ambition. We can make it so we don't have to sacrifice the best and the brightest on the battlefield. If we invest in air power, we can go over the enemy and not through them. 
And they come up with a whole range of new strategies that allow America to do this, ready for the next wars they might face in the future. And, and unmanned is, is a key part of that, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. So one of the things that was come up with was by a guy called um, Colonel Edgar S. Gorell. And he was one of the first chiefs of the American Army Air Service. And what he wanted to do, so whereas the British and Germans came up with their area bombing strategies, the whole idea that, you know, in order to destroy something, you have to destroy everything, taking um, Douai, I suppose, that it's most literal in many places. The Americans came up with a very different bombing strategy. They didn't want to do what the British and the Germans were doing. Instead, they came up with an idea called industrial web theory, which was more colloquially known as precision bombing doctrine. So you can trace it all the way back to this post-First World War period. And the whole idea was, is that if you bomb certain specific war-making capacity within the enemy's cities, right? So we're talking armaments factories, we're talking about um, places that you manufacture rubber, um, oil, uh, bullets, guns, anything you need for that frontline force. If you can bomb that with pinpoint precision, then you can weaken the teeth of your enemy. That's really important. Because when you meet them on the battlefield, instead of being stuck in these entrenched wars like you were in the First World War, you can go straight through them and avoid that massive cost to life that you had during the First World War. What they also spoke about, and this is quite interesting, it has parallels with how Obama spoke about precision as well, how it's proportionate, it's discriminate, it's moral, it's ethical, it saves lives. What they were talking about back in 1917 was that by bombing these specific war-making capacities within cities, you weren't going to do what the British and the Germans were doing and destroying whole cities. Instead, what you can do is you can save the enemy populace and their livelihood. You don't have to sacrifice their lives to achieve your strategic objective. So it goes all the way back to that early period, the dawn of air power. It's fascinating, isn't it, how you can see military buyers and planners sort of convincing politicians who are very reluctant warlords that this is a very ethical and nice way to win wars you don't have to kick the front door down and lay waste the enemy's territory you can just drop a bomb right on this little choke point and they couldn't um but they tried really hard and they invested so much money into actually trying making it a technical reality the kettering bug that i spoke about is one of those but there's things like the norden bomb site you know this thing was invested in i think it was 1.5 billion us dollars or something half the money of the manhattan project So Carl Norden, who leaves the Sperry Gyroscope Company, which actually had worked on the Kettering Bug, he goes off and he looks to fulfill his own mission. He's a devout Christian and he is repulsed by the First World War. And what he wants to do is create this bomb site, an early analogue computer that you can put in planes and that the bombardier can use. They can look through and they can look down at the ground and the Norden bomb site can tell them exactly when to drop the bomb. And then they could bomb with this pinpoint precision. They called it getting a bomb in a pickle barrel from, I think it was 20,000 feet, or hitting a mailbox on the corner. This was the ambition time and time again. And in pre-war tests, it worked. Um, But then when you got to kind of the actual heat of battle with smoke, um, and sometimes when you're bombing people, there's smoke in times of war, and sometimes when you're flying a plane, there's clouds. The trouble was, was that the Norden bombsite couldn't see through any of these. So what happens was you were pretty much just bombing blind. Um, and actually, it ends up being abandoned by around 1944. The Americans are pushing time and time again to try and learn from their mistakes of precision bombing doctrine. 
Um, Arnold has meetings with Churchill. Um, the generals between the British and the Americans kind of have these massive debates between each other. You need to bomb like us because that's far more effective. In order to destroy something, you have to destroy everything. That kind of bomber-Harris ethos. Um, but the Americans hold on and hold on. And they can hold on no more by 1944. And it comes to the bombing of Japan, and specifically the firebombing of Tokyo. And a general called General Haywood Hansel is taken out of charge of bombing over there. And a famous general, Curtis LeMay, uh, the big cigar-smoking general, is put in charge. And he has a completely different ethos. He's in line with the British, and he goes on to... Well, 180,000 civilian casualties in one night, I think, in Tokyo. The whole firebombing of the city. Bloodier than the dropping of the atomic bomb. Absolutely. Uh, what other other un- unmanned aerial vehicles, platforms in Second World War? Didn't the Japanese attach explosives to balloons and send them off floating across the Yeah, ocean? they did. Yeah, they sent them across. Uh, I think they tried to tie them in with the wind currents so they could fly across the US and cause this kind of mass fires um, didn't really work. I think kind of maybe one thing was set on fire, but I mean, it just wasn't at all. And so on the whole, was unmanned uh, uh, technology put on the back burner for, during the Second World War? No. Um, so a, of course, what I'm talking <coughs> about, the V1. The V1, V2, but the Americans had their own kind of experiments into um, uncrewed kind of early technologies, actually as a means to target the V-weapon sites in France. So what they had, they had a project called Operation Aphrodite. And they took old war-beaten B-17s and B-24s and they stripped them of everything they possibly could, all the weight. Then they packed them full of powerful Torpex explosives. Quite a volatile explosive, but really powerful one. Okay? They then put really early remote control technologies inside it and they even put a video camera on it. This is, this is how early we're talking here. And what they'd do is they needed a pilot to get them off the ground and then the pilot, in theory would parachute out, and the control would be handed over to a CQ-17 mothership, which is a a pretty sci-fi way of just saying a bigger plane higher up and further back. And then the pilot in that plane would take control, by remote control, of this... They called them drones. They called them drones, robots, and the name for them was babies, because they were so kind of really hard to handle. And... They would take them, and the aim was to fly them across, um, from Norfolk, actually, across the channel and hit the V-weapon sites with precision. One of the pilots who was involved in that operation was a Joseph Kennedy Jr., who um, would actually die whilst trying to parachute out of one of those early drones. So JFK's brother? JFK's older brother, who was being primed for the presidency. I actually went to the airfield last week, RAF Fairsfield, which is... A derelict site, largely farms. That's um, still got some of the buildings there, though. Uh, the officers' mess is now a home for pigs, and there's some Nissan huts there. But it's fascinating to know that JFK's older brother, as a means to try and protect London, was flying drones across Norfolk to try and hit V-weapon sites in France. It's also, as you're saying that, I'm thinking Sir Francis Drake and the fire ships at the Battle of Graveline as well. This is a, this is, I mean, that is remarkable. I did not know that story. Thank you very much. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? 
How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Is there just again? This is just R and D from that point to this, or, or have drones fallen in and out of the of fashion? They have fallen out in and out of fashion, but it's also been different branches of the U.S. military that have invested in them at different times. And you kind of look through the last 100 years or so, everything early on from the Kettering bug through to the Americans latching on to V1 and V2 technologies post Second World War and creating their own kind of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And there's a certain drive um, that you can trace intellectually to try and make these long-range, precision, unmanned missiles and systems. Um, I guess you're right. A, a, yeah. a jet, jet-propelled missile is, is a drone, but just not a reusable one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's Arnold, who... Uh, so General Arnold, who in 1917 helps kind of create this Kettering bug, who becomes obsessed with making these a viable reality. Now, before his death in 1950, what he does is, um, along with a few other people, he takes 10 million from the US budget. And as a means to keep all of that engineering, civilian engineering, scientific and academic help on board with the US Air Force, he creates the RAND Corporation. And the RAND Corporation, their early projects that they look into, a lot to do with um, space and satellites, but also a lot to do with precision missile technologies. And were they driven by sort of the military desire to deliver 
um, the payload with greater accuracy on, on an enemy target? Or was there this element of, of the Western democracies being unwilling to tolerate body bags, people being killed, being very nervous about uh, losing their own men and women? Hmm. I think it depends on the time period and depends who's dominant in branches of the military at the time. So I argue there's, with an American strategy, especially air power strategy, there's this struggle between those who advocate destruction and those who advocate precision. And all precision is, is increased destruction, if you want it to be. So the same technology can be used in two very different ways. It can be used for these kind of proportionate, discriminate, moral means as a means to reduce civilian casualties, um, or it can be used to increase destruction, well, in a manifold way, really. So it kind of depends on the time period in which you're looking at. Um, as we start to move out of the Cold War era, and we move through into kind of um, 88, 1991, some of the people who are working on American nuclear strategy, they argue that it's, we're never going to be able to use nuclear weapons because, you know, when the Soviet threat's still there, they argue that, you know, it's just going to make this mutually assured destruction. So we need to think of new ways to commit warfare. And they start to come up with conventional precision missiles. And these people are Albert Wallstatter, who actually worked at RAND, and he really pushed forward on, he pioneered precision missile technologies as a means to provide a non-nuclear way for America to face its threats worldwide. Yeah, to strike over a vast distance. Yeah. Remotely, absolutely. But without it being a nuclear missile, which is what had dominated the Cold War period. And then of course, as we move through into the Gulf in 91, it's some of these technologies they've been pioneering to fight the Cold War, which really come into their own against Saddam, right? Right, we all remember CNN, John all you know, BBC John Simpson or CNN, the tomahawks can turn the corner, but I'm seeing them turn corners in the streets of Baghdad. And that was the, the public, you know, in terms of drones, that was the beginning, wasn't it? Really, yeah. in terms of public awareness. Yeah. Drones were used then. You know, you've got drones that are flying, and we often neglect this kind of this point, but drones were used above um, the Gulf as a means to help the United States um, direct their missile strikes and their artillery strikes. So they were surveillance platforms at that time? They right? were surveillance or platforms at that country. time. Okay. Yeah, which had actually been um, first put into service as an Israel-American, Israeli-American project, which meant that these systems um, had actually nuclear radiation um, monitoring devices on them and so many other things. But put into the Gulf context, they were used as kind of an eye in the sky to help with targeting precision. And actually, um, I was talking to... Lieutenant General David Deptula, who um, oversaw the air power offensive in the Gulf the other week. And he was saying to me that when they sent the drones over Saddam's forces, what they saw was that Saddam's conscripts, a lot of them, would look up and see the drone and know that more precise strikes were coming in. And a lot of them would start waving their white flag. And it's the first time in the history of warfare that humans try to surrender to robots. Nice. Very nice. And and what was where were those drones being flown from? Uh, a lot nearer to right. the battlefield. So this is kind of pre um, GPS and just pre kind of ground control stations back in the US. So nowadays American drones are controlled from places like Creech Air Force Base um, back in the US, um, just outside of Las Vegas, 
Um, drone pilots are in their drone pods, and the drones themselves are located in theatres of conflict, whether or not they're Iraq or Syria. The British drones are controlled by, from RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire, and then our drones are flown from Cyprus and then out. Back then, you had um, kind of like mobile control units. Some were located in vans that were maybe a few hundred miles away from the actual battlefield. Um, in the Gulf, it would be into Saudi Arabia, of course. So that's where we'd have our things stationed. And then you'd fly them from there and control them from a lot closer. But now it's thousands of miles away. How important are drones now uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, Syria? How close are they to being the, I don't say, the, the main way of delivering uh, munitions on the enemy? I think that they're really close to being, the, if not already, the main way that we deploy force um, to achieve our national security objectives. The trouble is, is that we're rapidly moving into a new era of conflict where the American monopoly and the broader Western monopoly on the use of drones is fading. And instead, um, you now have 16 other nation states, and this is changing day by day, who have armed drone technologies. Not only that, you've got non-state actors that have their own weaponized drone technologies. We know that ISIS had their own improvised smart missiles that they were using against US and coalition forces on the grounds in the fights in Iraq and Syria. You know, this was a plague every single day, the US generals were saying, slowing them down to a snail's pace. And I see this proliferating at a pace. So within the next 10 years, it would be no shock if every state that wants to have an armed drone system will have them. And how is the use of these drones going to be controlled? We know that as drones have moved from Obama, who arguably um, tried to put controls on their use into the hands of President Trump, they've been used in far more of a, well, a less controlled and more indiscriminate fashion. So whereas Obama had a thing called imminent threat, you could only kill somebody if they were imminent threat to your national security. Under Trump, this has been slightly relaxed so that... The person can be killed, who is an imminent threat, but so can the people around them by association. So this could be their family, it could be their friends, it could be their taxi driver. So you've had this increase in collateral damage. Now, we don't know so much about it because the CIA have been given back control um, over drone strikes. It was taken away from them under Obama um, and handed to the Pentagon, right? The CIA could identify the targets, then the Pentagon would deploy the missiles. That's because the Pentagon's more accountable. So if it went wrong, you could find out about it and learn from it. The CIA can now choose the targets and deploy the missiles. And they're secret. So we can't find out about how many people are dying at the hands of these drone strikes. So that's just in the US hands. As these move out into a plethora of new state and non-state actors, there are a vast amount of ways in which these can be used in precision ways, absolutely, but also for more nefarious purposes. When do you think we'll see drones used in terrorist attacks in, in a, in a, within the Western democracies? Within the Western democracies? Hmm. Well, I think it's largely inevitable. We've already seen the first use of these civilian quadrocopters um, by activists. In Japan in 2015, um, environmental activists took radioactive waste from Fukushima, filled a vessel with it. Um, it was kind of sand that had been contaminated, and then tied it to their drone, flew it on top of the Japanese Prime Minister's house, where it sat radiating for two weeks without anybody noticing. 
Now, it's important to say that it was a small amount of radioactive waste, but it started to show us actually that these drones are pretty dangerous. I'm sure the Navy won't thank me for saying this, so I apologise. But when I <laughs> just before the Navy took delivery of it, I should say it wasn't in naval hands. Someone landed a drone right on the deck of the uh, Queen Elizabeth, the vast new aircraft carrier. And I did think, I hope this is not a, I hope this is not a, a vision of what is to come in the future. How this mighty piece of 20th century technology could be laid low by the 21st century miniature robot. And that's just one drone. And what we're seeing now, actually, uh, since the US first tested their drone swarms into a, a hundreds. The Chinese then did a drone swarm into a few hundred more. And now we've got drone swarms into a thousand drones in the sky that can swarm together like a flock of birds or a school of fish in the sea. The whole idea here is that you can overwhelm your enemy's defense capacity, whether that be a ship, whether it be their ground um, air defense capabilities. So that, as a state level, is the future of warfare. Actually, it's also the future at a non-state level, because just in January, a few weeks ago, we saw that terrorist actors, and we don't quite know who, although the Russians are saying that it's the Kurdish, with American help, although there's no proof of that, were able to fly between 13 and 20 droves all at once at a Russian airbase in Syria. Now, the Russians say they shot most of them down, and a few of the others were so flimsy they fell by the wayside. But other reports are coming out now to say that actually they got through the Russian defences and were able to cause damage on that base. So states have got swarms of drones, but so have non-state actors as well. You've left me feeling so optimistic. I mean, that's just great. Yeah, good. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Listen, this is so interesting. Thank you very much. And what's the name of the book? Uh, drone Warfare, Concepts and Controversies, and it's available to pre-order on Amazon now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.